Thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Does Not Compute. DigitalOcean is the easiest cloud platform to run and scale your applications. From effortless administration tools to robust compute, storage, and networking services, DigitalOcean provides an all-in-one cloud platform to help developers and their teams save time while running and scaling their applications. DigitalOcean offers predictable and affordable pricing so you can leave those complex pricing structures behind. With DigitalOcean, you always know what your business will pay per month for industry-leading price performance with a flat pricing structure, and yes, that includes all of their global data center regions. I personally have been using DigitalOcean for all of my side projects, and I couldn't ask for anything more, and I'm for sure going to use them for my next app. If you're thinking the same thing, then you're in luck. You can get started today with a free $100 credit at do.co slash does not. It only takes a few minutes to get up and running. Again, that's do.co slash does not to receive $100 of credit towards a flexible and scaling hosting solution for your next application. It's only Tuesday today, and it feels like I've already fit a full-on week into, into my schedule. Sounds like you've done a week's worth of work already. Yeah, it feels like it. <laughs> it feels like it. Uh, and so uh, an event happened, a thing happened maybe like an hour ago, which I, I fired you a screenshot. And you told me to leave you alone. You're like, I'm eating dinner. Leave me alone. And uh, we had some downtime, but Heroku was quick to point out that it wasn't my fault uh, in the email, which I thought was hilarious. I mean, I get it. It makes sense. Like they, they should probably say that, but that was the first thing that you think, like when I have a, I have a monitoring service, when you get an email saying, hey, your app is down. You're like, what did I do? And to make it even funnier, I actually deployed a pretty large change, like 30 minutes before things went down. Oh, no. <laughs> so, and to make it even triple funnier, uh, we just switched to Sentry for tracking errors. And uh, we, so up to that point, our error tracking threshold wasn't enough to actually pay for it. But and to make this even quadruple funny, it's maybe it's just one of those days. But I noticed that today, most of the day, we were getting hammered by just Googlebot and some other web crawlers. Today specifically, I don't know why. And so because of that, it, they were, I don't know, they're just like probing lots of stuff and we're still kind of shoring up. I mean, we just made a pretty big and pretty substantial change, right? Launching a giant spa and there's things that we need to clean up still. So anyhow. Um, it's triggering some some things in Sentry that we're filtering out, um, but some things we're not filtering out. So it put us over our plan threshold for being free. So I was trying to log into Sentry to just to actually like look at the stack trace, and it's like, what is happening? So I had to put the credit card in. <laughs> so while I was doing that, uh, I got an email from Heroku, and they were like, oh, uh, so by the way, uh, we had a physical hardware failure on your, your, the node that your database is on. And so we've pinged an engineer and they're going to go fix it. Oh, yeah. This is kind of... So Heroku's, I think, just hosted on Amazon, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're AWS-backed. Yeah, it's pretty much on top of AWS. So really, it's an AWS issue, but like at least Heroku can identify that and notify you. Yeah, so they have some sort of automated system in place and they'll try to fix things uh, with the robots. And if that doesn't work, they'll ping an engineer. So this is the first time I've seen this. If you have a database server in Heroku, you can go to... So with Heroku, you have different resources or add-ons. So we have a Postgres add-on. And you can go to basically like kind of an admin panel for each resource. And so for the Heroku app, it shows you how many connections there are to it. Uh, it shows you some monitoring or report things like, hey, here are the most recent queries that might ex like might impact performance or might run slowly. 
And when I looked at it, it just said error, operator informed or operator alerted. So I was like, oh no, <laughs> that's why I knew things are real bad. Yeah. On one hand, it's kind of scary that you really can't do anything about it because Heroku is this layer of abstraction on top of like your database and everything. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of nice that they're at least trying to do something about it. Like if, if you had a hardware failure on your only EC2 database instance, so what are you going to do about it? You're kind of screwed either way. You got to yeah. spin up a new instance and restore from a backup or hope you had a had a, a replicated spare that you can just make the master and switch it over. That's that's the whole thing. So it's kind of cool they're doing it for you, but yeah, it's kind of it's 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 kind of nice it's out of your hands because it's, it's no no you know skin off your back, but it kind of is because it's your responsibility to keep the site running. So did you have any downtime from this or what? Uh, about twenty minutes. Oh, okay. So yeah, so it's it's interesting, right? So uh, we have a follower database. So we have our main uh, we have the main database that you know, host most of the traffic. And then we have a follower database that kind of acts like a cache. And so in reading some more of the documentation, again, I didn't, I wasn't exactly sure. So half of that 20 minutes, maybe three quarters of that 20 minutes was us waiting for Heroku to actually tell us that it was a hardware failure. So we didn't really want to do anything. So in case of an actual hardware failure, if you have a follower database, you can promote, you can promote that database to being your, your main database. Uh, so you just promote it to the master position. That's cool. Probably just like a master slave under the hood, probably. Well, they call it follower. Uh, yeah. A little bit nicer of a term, I guess. But yeah, essentially, it's literally that. It's um master follower setup. And so we could have promoted the follower database, but uh, we didn't. Because again, like I said, like three quarters of the downtime was us looking, just like trying for first me, like upgrading our sentry plan. <laughs> and then and then looking at our server logs to see what was going on. and. Uh, then from there, uh, checking Heroku. I mean, there was a whole conversation, so I had to like take some time and update the team. Like, hey, FYI, we're having some downtime. Doesn't look like it's our fault. Uh, our data should be good because, like, again, like I said, we have a follower database and we have uh, rollbacks enabled. So, at a certain tier on Heroku, you can have um, basically live rollbacks. So, if you need to roll back to like ten minutes ago, you can. You just go to the admin panel. And you can actually type in some sort of timestamp and it'll roll your database back to the timestamp, which is pretty cool. Oh, wow. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And that, those are the reasons why I'm kind of really hesitant to loo- like leave Heroku's things like that. Like I can type a timestamp into, I have no idea how to set that up on my own, but I kind of get it for free here. Uh, well, not for free because obviously I'm paying more for it, but at our current, you know, our current level, it makes sense to pay a little bit more and not have to have a full on DevOps manager in house. It's it's only free if your time is worth nothing. Yeah, yeah. So there was like a whole conversation where I was like, hey, here's what's going on. Having to make sure that everyone actually acknowledged that message. Like, hey, hey, are you like kind of snapping at somebody? Like, hey, are you there? Uh, making sure that you're aware in case a store calls you or someone calls you that you can actually provide them a useful response instead of a, oh, I don't know, let me check. Because I don't know, it sounds pretty bad if, if something like that's happening. What do users see if the database is down? Do they just get a 500 or do you have some kind of landing page or they just get like a, we'll be right back kind of thing? Yeah, we just have a 500 page, okay. 500 uh, page that shows up. And that's that's all on the Nux side. Um, so Nux would make a request to the API uh, in the SSR, the server side rendering portion of the request, and then it would get the 500 back and then it would render a 500 template that we have to the user. If it's real bad, they'll just see a Heroku error page. Uh, like if things if things really crash, but um, they should they should have been seeing. And what I saw was a 
just kind of like a as from about as friendly as you can get, saying like, "Oh, we'll be right back." Mm-hmm. So it's Tuesday. <laughs> uh, so the rest of the week, yeah. So we're we're back. We're all good. We're all good. We're all good. good. Um, we have all our data, everything, you know. Yeah. So the rest of today. So I started on a big shipping update uh, yesterday, and so we are pulling in kind of a white glove shipping service. They do more than white glove, but since we ship furniture, we need to have shipping is maybe the most where we lose the most people because that's always the biggest what if, like how how is this thing going to get from point A to point B? Where does this person live? How big is this thing? And that's a problem because all your stores that are members of the service, they're all located all over the place, right? They're, they normally are used to just dealing locally with people just coming to their store, right? And shipping locally. Yeah. So that's like shipping is a big thing for us because we have a lot of, I've rewritten it three times maybe uh, <laughs> as we learn and as we grow. There's always, it's like between every major project, there's like a shipping project where we kind of rehash some stuff. Uh, and so I've kind of built it. It's kind of like, what are those called? A Rube Goldberg machine? Yeah. Where, yeah. So it's kind of like, that's what it is. Um, the shipping, the heart of the shipping setup for DK is basically a pipeline. And it's, well, it's not really a pipeline. It's more of a, 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 a con statement. Uh, and so we, it kind of has to be that way, I guess. Um, I'm trying to think how else I would even do it. I don't know. But this like, this makes it kind of so that we don't need a lot of nested conditionals, right? So it's just a conda statement. And we know, for example, that if the order status is, or the order shipment status is, preference rather, is pickup, then we don't need to check anything else. So we can just bail out at the first step of the cond. And we basically have the endpoint for the shipping stuff. This is kind of getting into the weeds. And I feel like I'm going to ramble a bit here, but go for it. The endpoint for the shipping stuff, it always it always turns the same, same shape to the client. So if the order status is pickup, then if somehow you were to fetch rates, you would just get an empty list back. Uh, so there would be no rates for you because your order status is, or your order pre- preference is pickup. And so if we get past pickup, it's not pickup, then we have to say, okay, is this a small item? Can we ship it with Easy Post because they are one of the the services that we use? And if it is shippable with Easy Post, then it, it bails out at that part of the con statement and um, returns rates from Easy Post. And if it's not, then we continue on. Okay, is is this a larger? It's called an LTL, less than truckload. So it'd be larger than you could ship with, say, USPS or UPS, but it's smaller than a full truckload shipment. And so if it fits into that category, then we make a request to our new partner's API, and then we return rates from there. And if you get all the way to the end and there's no rates, then we return what we call a TBD rate to be determined. And that just alerts the customer in the store that, hey, shipping is going to be worked out after the purchase, which is also, I guess, pretty standard for boutique sites and boutique stores ordering online. Sure. So it's kind of like a big Rube Goldberg where it just kind of like bounces through the conditionals on the con and then out the other end becomes a, a tag tuple with OK and uh, either an empty list or a list of maps, essentially mapping to rates. So what you've basically described in in most other control flows would be like an if, else, if, else, if, else, if kind of situation, right? And that sounds like yeah. from what you're telling me, that's kind of what you had before. How did you end up refactoring it to 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 be nicer? Uh, basically, originally it was, it was just like if, else. And then, so luckily I haven't had much trouble with this endpoint because most of the rehashing back to the shipping endpoint isn't redesigning how it works. It's adding another... St- another layer into the cake, so to speak. So we're just adding another, we're just adding another filter to the coffee grounds. So it's just going to go through another filter and then the water might get shoveled out there instead. Hmm. 
and so it's kind of always been a con to there because I wouldn't, I don't know, it, like if else it was gross and then the uh, like case wouldn't be much better. Con to at least makes sense because you have very specific. So each, each step of the con is just a, a conditional itself. So if this returns, if some expression returns true, then go ahead and do this thing. So I just have a bunch of one-off functions, private functions like is this thing shapeable via easy post? So it makes sure that it has all the dimensions that we need and make sure that it's under this, a certain size limit that easy post has. Um, so it's just kind of like pumping it through all these little functions. And then if it returns true, then it just kicks off at that, at that point. So we haven't really had any major refactorings there, but, uh, what I did. So I had mentioned to you earlier today that I refactored, I think it was like 95 lines of conditionals and nested conditionals into, uh, five functions. That was actually for something else. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so I, I heard you're a backend developer now. Sounds like. Yeah, I don't really do. I haven't touched the front end in a while, uh, which which is kind of nice. Like Paul has been, Paul's closed out so many issues. Like So we had a Trello board that was just kind of neglected for a month while we did this other thing. And it was kind of neglected before that, to be honest, because I just couldn't keep up with everything. And so Paul has like clean, he did some spring cleaning the past few days while I was doing these other things, the shipping, working on the shipping update. But yeah, I feel I'm a pretty much a back-end developer now, I guess. But this this stuff that I refactored, so one of the big things is being on Design Collective is being able to add an item to your cart if you're a guest. And so there's a couple of different ways you can approach that. Number one is you can create a new order or a new cart for every single session that's your server. So if it's a guest, create a new order, just don't assign it to anybody. It's just assigned to that session. And then once that person converts via sign in or sign up, you just assign that order from the session to that person. The other approach is you can not do that and only create an order when either a guest or a user adds something to their cart. And the early days of DK through like Rails, we kind of inherited it so where every session just had an empty order. And that was mostly fine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're going to have lots of empty orders in your database. I think we have like three and a half million rows in that table, <laughs> most of which can be cleaned out. But we didn't really have any race conditions because it was a server rendered app. So there was only one single request at a time per user. Right. And you're building that new order on the request and users only making one request at a time. So there's no, yeah, there's, they're always going to have a request when that, that, that one page loads because one page equals one request, right? Exactly, yeah. Well, it turns out, it turns out that when you have a spa, that's not always the case, especially if you're doing like server-side rendering and, and you're doing kind of like async requests. So for example, if you're on just a traditional like Rails rendered app or Elixir rendered app and you hit the homepage, um, that all that data is happening on that one request, like I'm saying. But if you're on a spa or if you're doing some sort of server-rendered uh, JavaScript app, you might want to async those requests. So if you're loading on, if you're landing on the homepage, you might need to show products. You might need to show stores. You might need to show magazine issues. You also need some sort of order stuff, like order data, right? So it would make sense to do all that stuff asynchronously. So it's not. So it just happens quicker, right? Well, it also turns out that when you do them asynchronously, asynchronously, uh, you are also creating lots of orders <laughs> because it's sort of a race con- a race condition, right? So one request might hit. And if we actually have to create an order and persist it to the database, another request might hit before the order is returned and put in the session. 
Right. And yeah, we, we rubber ducked on this a little bit and you walked me through it and explained here you had this plug that was before every single request that was had all this business logic in it. And, and over time, it became apparent that yes, we could fix the race condition, but really it's, it's a symptom of a fundamental misunderstanding of, of how requests are handled in the new application, right? It's a totally different paradigm yeah. for, for handling what consists of one atomic, you know, transaction basically, and and having all that business logic in the the web layer also felt kind of gross too. Yeah, yeah, I did. So while I didn't completely understand 100 percent of the intricacies of you know how the thing was implemented by having it explained, I was it you know, and just getting you set in the right direction, then you immediately hit on the right solution, and just went off and and did it. So that yeah, um, that helps. Yeah, it was like a light bulb moment. I think kind of when we were talking the other day, I don't really know much about what you were working with with WebSockets and the async tasks you had going on. But I said something that triggered a light bulb in your head and you were able to make a lot of progress on that. And it was kind of a similar thing where you just said something that triggered a light bulb. And I was like, maybe we don't have to make an order for every request. <laughs> uh, and the the change itself ended up being really simple. And that has other benefits too, so... Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, okay. So another substantial benefit of that is because this this is in production now. By the way, I did that this morning and tested it. It's automated. It's all covered in automated tests and everything, and it's in, it's live in production now. It turns out that it shaved about forty megabytes worth of RAM off of the the server process too. Oh, holy cow! Yeah, I have to think about that. I guess if you're doing a lot of ecto requests on every request, that's gonna that's gonna eat up memory. So the preloads, the preloads. So it's all about the preloads. Uh, we have. Yeah, we have a cart context and the cart context is used in the checkout and in all the stuff. So there's just some handy functions there for like getting an order and making sure that everything you need to render a receipt, like an order shipment and things like that are are associated and preloaded, right? So that works great for building a receipt view or, you know, showing a, a cart that's in progress. It's maybe not the right thing to do in a plug that is run on every request that hits the server. <laughs> Yeah, and the every request is a separate process, so that memory will eventually be thrown out. But you're also using these um these pools pool of maybe ten ecto connections to your database, and maybe yeah, you know those those are using resources as well. So maybe that's where it was sticking around. I'm not sure. Yeah, and it wasn't a major deal because in the grand scheme of things, we were still only using 130 megabytes of RAM. <laughs> yeah, you're really splitting hairs. Yeah, but so what you're saying is that yeah, that stuff's going to stick around for a little bit. So Heroku has a daily restart, right? And so that happened um uncannily enough maybe 10 minutes before the big uh database outage of 2018. And I noticed that the RAM usage drops on a restart. So there's obviously stuff kind of sticking around, but again, like like I said, it's we're using we're using a 1x dyno which is 25 bucks and we're using, you know, 25 maybe 30% of it. So I'm not really too concerned about it. It was just kind of a nice thing. I wasn't really trying to shave memory usage off of it, but it was a nice side effect. And things are just a little, things should be faster. Like the initial response, again, it wasn't slow before, but now it should just be faster because they're not preloading and all that stuff. But there essentially was uh, a, an if-else that, that kicked off some cases. And it was just lots of nested conditional logic uh, to handle how things were done before. And so I guess the main change was that we actually wanted to change how carts were assigned to users. So for example, 
if you're a guest and you add it to your cart, then you sign in, that's yours. But what if you're a get like what if you already have an account and you already have a cart, but you're not logged in and you add something to your cart and then you log in, what happens then? Do you throw the old order away? Do you throw the new order away? Do you merge the two? And so we were just throwing the old order away and now we're merging the two. So what kind of spurred this big refactor wasn't that I implemented the new solution and was like, this should be cleaner. It was that I kind of had to, to get rid of the the mental block that I had there. I was so used to how it worked before that I couldn't really think my way around how it should work without blowing away all of the tests that I had written for that and blowing away the actual implementation that I had and I started from scratch. And so once I did that, things were so much, so much simpler to reason about. That's funny. Yeah. Sometimes it just takes takes that little nudge to to understand. Yeah. I came across a tweet by someone was quoting Dave Thomas and he has an Elixir course I'll put in the show notes, but he was he I think he was kind of ranting about something and he was saying that, you know, every for every conditional that you add, you're basically multiplying the complexity of that function by two or more, depending on if you have a cond or a case or whatever. And so I was thinking to myself, wow, this function has more than one. So the complexity is just duplicated and duplicated and duplicated. So the big one of the big features of Elixir is pattern matching, right? In function overloading, I guess, I don't really know what the technical term of it, but it, defining defining a function multiple times and just pattern matching off of what's, what it's given to you, right? Um, I, th- I think it's just oh, function overloading is what I would call it. I don't know if that's technically, it's kind of an object-oriented term, but same idea. So I just kind of took that to heart and I was thinking this morning, I was drinking my coffee. I was like, I should, do, I should do that because I don't think that I need conditionals. Most of the conditionals were testing the state of a current user or lack thereof or the state of a user or an order or lack thereof. So I was like, that sounds a lot like I can actually just use pattern matching to pull those values out. And instead of, like I said, 95 lines of conditional logic and things going on, now I have five functions that just pattern match on variations of a user in an order. And each function body does a very simple thing. So A, that made it easier to reason about. B, that made it easier to test. Well, well, I mean, it's funny because you almost, in Elixir, you almost never have to write a conditional, like an if-else. You can you can just do everything with pattern matching and, and functions and cases. I mean, an if is literally, have you ever looked at the if macro? Someone sent it to me at one point. Yeah, it's it's literally an if. The way if is implemented in Elixir is literally a macro that's a case statement. That's it. There's no, there's no <laughs> if keyword in Elixir. It's just a macro. So the nice thing about writing code that way is it forces you to sort of you know, group that logic, like you said, but also you have to give it a name. Yep. You're like, okay, what is this chunk of code doing? If you just have an if, it doesn't necessarily, you sometimes, I actually do this a lot in Ruby, you write a comment and you're like, explains, okay, this is what this if block is checking and here's what it's going to do, right? How many times have I done that? So many times. And if you have like a function that has a name, okay, now you can point it at and and know exactly what that little thing does and you can kind of piece it together. It's it's one of those things that it's it's easier to read than it is to write right? Which is really how it should be. Yeah. And I think that's, that's definitely a powerful concept and you, you kind of have to rewire your brain to think of that. Um, I, yeah. I had to throw away the context that I had in my brain to be able to see around it, which I thought was the funny thing because as soon as I deleted all that stuff and started writing tests, because I, as soon as I deleted the test file and the actual code in, in the call function of the plug, 
I just started writing tests. I was like, okay, what does this thing need? What do we, you know, I knew what the end result needed to be. So I wrote tests to verify that. Like, you know, it's just basic uh, test driven development, you know, red, green refactor. Uh, so I just wrote a bunch of tests that described what I wanted to see and then just slowly worked my way towards that. That's cool. And the only reason I did any of that stuff today with the the order change, and that's like, I've been dreading doing that, to be quite honest. Uh, that's been in GitHub for months. <laughs> and I was just didn't want to do it because I, w- I was thinking to myself, every single connection that comes through hits this thing. It's a pretty big deal and it needs to be done right. So I was just dreading doing it. But the only reason I got to that today was because the the account rep that we have for our new shipping partner, I don't want to say their name because I don't want them, you know, if, if someone hears about it, I don't want them to feel like I'm mad at them or, or like, you know, dragging their name through the mud. But our account rep, I had a question that's kind of blocking me and our account rep hasn't gone back to me today. And so I was like, oh, I should probably just do this. And that's the only reason why that got done today. Yeah, I love it when stuff like that happens and you you get a lot of really productive work like that done. And then this actually happens to be a lot where I'll have a huge backlog of issues in GitHub or whatever. And once in a while, I'll be like, oh, I should go through and check some of these old issues. And I'm like, oh, I already did that. Oh, done, done, done. Like in, in the course of, of <laughs> yeah. accomplishing some huge higher goal, you ended up checking off all those little things that were sitting on the back burner forever that maybe you couldn't have done without without the uh, all that extra work that you were doing anyways. So yeah, when you can justify it by having like a concrete goal, it's way easier to to make yourself get the work done than it is to just like, oh, I'm gonna spend a day refactoring. Like that doesn't that doesn't always feel productive, right? Yeah, it was kind of like it felt like kind of one of those things where someone's like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm going to pull the bandaid off your arm," and then they count. They say, "I'm gonna count to three, and they pull it on two. I felt like that's kind of what happened. Where I was more stressed out about thinking about the shipping update and not hearing back from our account rep than I was realizing that this was a pretty big deal. Like this thing, like I knew it was a big deal, but my focus and my stress wasn't on that. It was on something else. So that freed me up to actually just do this thing. It removed the um. I don't know, the perceived difficulty from it, I guess. At one of my previous jobs where I worked at a large, much larger company, many thousands of people, international, you know, doing doing development. And I had my little cubicle and and I was buddies with my coworker across the aisle. And I was having a rough day, uh, just couldn't focus or was distracted by meetings or, you know, what whatnot. And he he looks at me and he's like, sometimes you just got to write code. And like, it's so, it's so dumb, right? <laughs> but yeah, sometimes, sometimes you just need to just, just, just turn off everything else and just, just sit down and just write code and, you know, just get in that mindset. And that, I don't know why that stupid little saying, but it always kind of stuck with me when I was feeling not productive. Like, okay, I'm just gonna just, just gotta do something. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I feel stuck, I, I can't remember where I came across this. It was in a GitHub thread somewhere, but they were talking about how if you come back to a thing, because I had made some changes and I had this, this all this like this non-working implementation of this, this order plug. I had it in a stash, and they said, you know, if you come, if you if you have stuff stashed or you have changes that you haven't checked in, and it's been more than a few days, maybe you should just blow those away and start over. <laughs> that was another kind of thing that I was thinking about, along with the Dave Thomas thing, where he was saying don't don't use conditionals, use pattern matching and function overloading. I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to delete the stash. And I did it. And then I deleted the code and uh, it it seemed to work out. But it's funny how, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes you just have to write some code. Uh, For me, it helps a lot when that's some sort of test. 
and I kind of talked to you about this too. I wasn't really sure how to test this plug because the test that I wanted to write felt more like an integration test sort of. Uh, it was testing the outside of the thing, testing the user. And when this type of user does this thing, then I expect this thing to happen, which is certainly not a unit test. Um, so I wasn't really sure. I was like, this doesn't feel right. But really what I needed to do was just write the test anyway. And if it wasn't in the right spot, I can move them later, but at least they're there, you know? So th- there were just all these like small little barriers that were kind of stopping me from getting this thing that I needed to get done for quite a while. And then I guess when I was distracted and thinking about something else, it just removed that barrier and I was just able to do it. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the Cult of Done manifesto? I don't think so. So this was written by Bree Pettis, who works for Maker Magazine. I think he's a writer, reporter for them. And uh, someone else here, Keo Stark, I'm not sure. But they wrote this list um, of 13 bullet points for... It's more for, you know, these sort of makers and creative people for tips for getting things done. And uh, number five is banish procrastination. If you wait more than a week to get an idea done, abandon it. So kind of kind of extreme. You know, there's lots of lots of great little nuggets in here. I'll put a link in the show notes that you don't always have to follow. But sometimes it's good to be able to point to one of these things and be like, you know what, I'm just gonna just gonna follow this today and, and do this to in order to get things done. But when you mentioned just you had this whole stash and you did all this work and you're just like, you know, what, I'm just going to throw it out. That's that's what I thought of. You know, it's it's stale. It's old. You've got new ideas. Don't it's a sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, that's that's true. So, I mean, I've just blathered on for, what, 30 minutes about stuff. And I know so we've we haven't like actually talked uh, since we last recorded, I don't think. But I know that you've actually made quite a bit of headway on I think what we talked about last week in terms of like memory usage and performance on uh, your WebSockets, you want to want to catch me up on that? Yeah, gladly. So we, I'm actually done with it now. I've got it to a point where it's good enough. Like I'm actually happy with it, <laughs> which doesn't happen much. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of little little steps. So what I'm working on is this Phoenix application that is basically a glorified message queue. It passes messages back and forth between users who are operating these remote ham radio stations and the stations themselves. And I really wanted to utilize Phoenix's and Elixir's and Erlang's underlying technologies to make this really, really cool. So I wanted to be distributed and I wanted it to be super, super fast and efficient and fault tolerance is not so much there. Um, Like if there's a net split, for example, that's not really an example of fault tolerance, but Right now, if there's a net split, so if the two nodes lose interconnections with each other, you just half the people drop off. Remember the battle days of IRC net splits, Dalnet and Fnet and all that? I was too scared to go on IRC. Uh, <laughs> so it's basically the same thing. If you lose connection to the other nodes, they just basically don't exist until they can reconnect to each other. But so I went through this whole journey of, okay, I got this initial prototype and I've got these, wrote these millions of little gen servers that are long living and they sit on every server and they store the state. And that just, I learned, I went into a really, really deep dive on how Erlang garbage collection memory usage works. And it's not nearly as simple as you think. In fact, it's to give the, the short explanation is basically Erlang is very lazy when it comes into collecting memory, uh, mostly for performance reasons, right? It assumes that mm-hmm. if a process uses a lot of memory, it's going to use a lot of memory later. So even if it 
it's done using that memory, it just keeps it allocated, right? And if only if there's memory pressure basically put on by the operating system or the virtual machine will it will actually spend time to go through and and clean up memory. Sure. And it's kind of fun. You can actually just force it. There's literally Erlang.garbagecollect. <laughs> and you can send that to any process. And even the system processes, anything. You can you can literally enumerate every process ID that's running and just say garbage collect. That's amazing. For for something as our scale, like you don't even notice it. It's just a blip and nothing happens. But and the, the the memory usage drops way down, but then it eventually climbs back up because it just kind of reaches this equilibrium where yeah. it's you know just like Linux seems to. There's a site called Linux uh, Linux ate my RAM, I think. <laughs> and it, yeah, you sent me to. Yeah, yeah, it's really eye opening to see just how how memory usage is thing. So basically, your memory your memory situation is not as bad as you think it is, and but it's still nice to have it nice and cleaned up. So sure, through a lot of series of steps, I. There were a lot of little things. So I first thing I did to help clean things up was, although I have these web sockets that are these long-lived connections, for every message that comes into the web socket, I actually spawn a brand new process just to handle that message. So just in the way that plug or cowboy or you know the, the way Phoenix requests come in, it's a request comes in, makes a new process, handles the thing, and the process is done and cleaned up. And that's nice because the way processes work is they don't share memory at all. All they can do is pass messages back and forth. And so as soon as a process dies, the Erlang virtual machine is like, oh, all that memory's done and just cleans it up for you automatically. It's a way of doing manual garbage collection. Yeah, that makes sense. So that was a big, big discovery. So that was that was huge. And again, the reason that occurs is because if you have these long-lived processes and you pass in these basic big messages through them, the virtual machine will allocate tons of memory for those, even if they're not being used all the time. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then that was really the biggest one. I actually found, oh yeah, I also found that sometimes you just kind of have to strategically call a garbage collecting routine. So in these web sockets, when the user joins a channel, we do a bunch of ecto requests and preloads and load a bunch of stuff from the database. And then we never do that again. Everything else that happens in the process is really, really lightweight. So on the join callback for the channel. I just do all my loading, set up my state, get everything set up, and then I just call garbage collect. And then for the rest of the time, the thing just sits at okay. basically no no memory usage. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. I guess I could have done something like that in my order plug too, because when we were using the cart context and it was preloading all that stuff, it would just hang around and it would never really be used again in that in that context anyway. So it would just kind of hang around like you said and I never thought to look at again ram wasn't an issue so i never had to go look for it yeah yeah right but i never came across that you're laying the garbage collect because we were we were in a shared code uh vs code session when you discovered it and i was like what you can just do that <laughs> it seems so i don't know quaint or uh seems like a really big hammer but it's really not a big of a deal right yeah what did the, the doc said something along the lines of if uh, if you're using this, you probably know, like you you probably know what you're doing, or you probably know that that you need it, um, but otherwise stay away from it. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be wanting to be calling it willy nilly. You kind of you got to kind of know what you're doing, and the, the most most of these just for performance, right? They're really really yeah trying to get as much performance out of it as possible. So, and the last big piece of this was using Erlang term storage for storing all this state on the servers. So. ETS only uses a very small amount of memory. It You can fetch and read from it. And the cool thing is I have concurrent reads. So basically, whenever you use ETS, you almost always are using read concurrency because otherwise, why are you even bothering um, 
it just you literally just say read concurrency true sure and then it you get parallel or concurrent i should say not parallel you get concurrent access to the thing when this is useful because i'm updating this is a case where i'm updating the rows very very infrequently but i'm reading from them very very often right every single message that comes through the system i got to read from ets so this is a perfect case for that i kind of set it and forget it yeah so read concurrency read concurrency was just great for performance and again because i'm only fetching that state in these little tiny short-lived processes i could do the fetch do the thing get in get out and then it just dies and that's it and i wish that was explained somewhere because i feel like my use case is not too esoteric especially with web sockets and a lot of people are going to be using web sockets and they're going to run into these issues so um, a couple of the examples I looked at where people were having similar issues with quote unquote memory leaks were were very similar use cases handling messages passed through these long lived processes. So I think there needs to be a little more education and maybe that's something right. I should write up at some point because it was very eye opening. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's something you could write up. We've, we've been trying to, I think like one of us mentions it every six months, like we have a repo that we're going to fill full of tips and we just don't. <laughs> Uh, full of like Phoenix tips and Elixir tips and stuff. Uh, but I mean, that's something that I could potentially rely on too, that, that knowledge that you've gained. Because like I said, we're going to be doing uh, some real-time things coming up. And I don't really have much experience in that area. I haven't really ever used a WebSocket or built a WebSocket or shipped something that has a WebSocket in it myself. So to me, this is all new. Even though there's, there's plenty of tools around for it, even though uh, Phoenix ships with out of you know out of the box support for websockets and and things like that it's still kind of an intimidating topic for me yeah there there's really not much to it it, it it'll it make a lot of sense once you start playing with it i'm not i'm not worried i think you'll you'll pick up right, right away but yeah the the details of sort of the way to think about sockets i, I fell into this trap really really early where i was writing lots of application code in my sockets and it was kind of the same trap of writing lots of application code in your controllers, right? It's the web layer. You don't want to, yep. you don't want to lock all that stuff up in there. So you kind of want to get make the socket be this thin layer, but it's not quite that simple because now the socket has state, and you got to write your functions in a way that you can pass the state in and push to the socket. There's there's a lot more tied up in it as opposed to just a one shot request where you kind of have everything set up for you once. You do the thing and you return a result, right? This is it's it's a little more nuanced, but it's the the, the trade offs are definitely worth it because of the the experience that you can get from that is very very it's super fast and just just great. I mean, we've been I've been doing WebSockets since RHR started in you know using uh, the old Fay WebSocket Ruby adapter, and it's just always been pretty good. So. I guess, I mean, it just sounds like nothing is always as easy as it's touted to be because there's lots of technologies and libraries and frameworks these days that are like, oh, this thing has become so easy. It's it's next to, you know, it's it's next to being done for you, right? Uh, you basically don't have to do anything, which that's never really the case. Uh, the case is always, it gets you so far and then that's where the learning and experience comes in. And, and kind of what you're saying is you had to, change a little bit about how you're doing things in order to kind of tune things to be as performant as you needed to or, or wanted them to be. And that's my experience with everything generally. And a lot of people 
I don't know, they would they would kind of tout Phoenix to be kind of the same thing. Like, oh, you switch to Phoenix and, and your app is just so much faster out of the box. And yeah, Elixir is faster, but a large part of that is also Ecto and the differences between Ecto and Active Record. Not that Active Record is bad, it's just different, right? So I think Paul, Paul says something to me like once every couple of weeks. He's like, man, Ecto makes hard things easy and easy things hard <laughs> uh, when comparing it to Active Record. Yeah. And then that's, I don't know, that's just like, I'm probably guilty of saying stuff like that or like reading blog posts. I've read a lot of blog posts. They're like, oh, it's so easy. Ecto makes it easy. And it's like, well, not not quite in general terms, maybe. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of the implementation details, that's where you run into problems or you run into uh, not like, it's, it just feels like someone's like, not so fast. And they kind of stop you a little bit or like slow you down or like someone jumps on your back and you have to carry them. And I guess I don't know. That's where, that's what I think about WebSockets. I mean, I did finish the um, Absence book, Building Crafting APIs with Elixir and Absence. I finished that. And so there, there's a chapter about subscriptions and WebSockets. And even that was, I'm going to have to read the book again, I think, to make sure that I picked everything up. Yeah. I mean, that's true of everything. It's nothing's a silver bullet. And I learn a lot by more with Elixir than anything else is actually just looking at the source code of how other people do things. I was never really able to do that in any object-oriented way because there's so much hidden magic that's happening behind the scenes. And with with functional language, it's mm-hmm. way more explicit. It's way easier to follow how things are flowing through the system. And so like when I was learning ETS, I I was like, okay, how this seems like the right tool for the job. How do other people use it? And use that as an indicator like, okay, this is the right tool to use or it's not. And maybe I don't understand why, but at least I know that that I'm either on the right or wrong track. And so I think while knowing new technology is always going to be, it's always going to be a challenge. It's never going to be as easy as anyone tells it to be. It might, it's definitely going to be easier than things that came before it, right? Because otherwise, what's the point? But sure, having the tools to advance to that point where it does actually become better, that's you know, having the documentation, having the community, having the libraries, that's that's where the real value comes in. Drop some truth bombs on you. Yeah. On that note, let's uh let every I guess let everyone go. We've been talking their ears off for forty five minutes. But more importantly, I just heard the ice cream truck. Give me an Oreo sandwich. And I need to get some because it's hot. It's hot here. And I heard that thing. Yeah, I can get you one. I can mail it to you if you want. It'll be uh pretty liquidy by the time it gets to you, but I can do that. But hey, thanks, thanks everybody for listening. Um, and we we hang out on Spectrum, we hang out on Twitter, uh, we hang out. Well, I don't hang out on IRC. Rockwell might. I don't. It's too intimidating for me. No, no, no. Slack, Slack is as as old school as I go now. Yeah, but you should all come hang out with us and uh, ask us questions and talk to us. Maybe we might have some questions for you. We had some great feedback from a listener, uh, Emily, yesterday, who was a Elixir developer and a ham. And so that was really cool to hear. So really appreciate your guys' feedback. And if there are any other hams out there, uh, shoot me uh, shoot me a message. Yeah, we just love it when people tweet at us or message us or just talk to us in general because we're lonely people and we need some interaction in our lives. But yeah, I just want to say thanks everyone for, for listening and hanging around. And uh, if you do feel like it, just give us a review on, on iTunes. It just helps everybody else know uh, how awesome our community is. So we'd, uh, we'd appreciate that. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring today's episode. DigitalOcean really is the easiest cloud platform to run and scale your applications. 
Visit do.co slash does not to sign up and receive a free $100 credit towards your next application. Again, that's a free $100 towards DigitalOcean's effortless administration tools, their robust compute, storage, and networking services, one-click app installs, and even monitoring and alerting services so you can sleep well knowing your application is running A-OK.